The Department of Homeland Security recently released its highly anticipated cybersecurity performance goals designed to establish some baseline measures of cybersecurity for businesses and critical infrastructure. In doing this, they worked with the National Institute for Standards and Technology to try to come up with 37 cybersecurity baselines to help keep critical infrastructure more secure. But how valuable is this in the real world? Hi, thanks for joining us today. I'm Gary Cohen. Welcome back to the ICS Pulse podcast. Joining me as always, Tyler Wall. Hey, and right off the gun, I have a question for you, Gary. Wow, that's fast. Sure. I'm. That's not usually how this podcast works, but let's go. Yeah, so if you had to pick your favorite fast food chicken sandwich, which one would you pick? It's an interesting question. Non-cybersecurity related. I uh, probably, uh, I've got some misgivings about this, but I'd probably go Chick-fil-A. I'm live and die by Popeyes. All right, let's get into this. <laughs> Very important information at the outset. We have kind of a fun one today. Uh, one of the people that we talked to quite a bit here at ICS Pulse, Sam May with Steel Root. Very, very interesting guy. Uh, we got to talk to him for a little while about a couple of topics. Uh, the first one are these guidelines that the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, hey, I said that correctly, recently put out and whether he believes they're valuable or not. Uh, I'll let you listen to the interview to find out if he believes they're valuable or not. Uh, we talk a little bit about the cybersecurity skills gap as well, this idea that there's a labor shortage. But I always love having him on because, um, man, he's opinionated in a good way. He will tell you what he thinks. And he's willing to be challenged and he wants you to challenge him. But he's definitely got opinions about what's out there. So uh, agree, disagree, but uh, he had some things to say. Yeah, and it's it's really great that he does like to just kind of put himself out there no matter how hot his takes may be because I mean, that's what drives change forward is having a conversation at the table about these different takes and um, where to kind of go from there with them. And I think these uh, CISA goals and guidelines that they put out in my two cents are valuable in that a lot of them are basic cybersecurity practices people should be doing anyway. They're not rocket science from a cybersecurity perspective multi-factor authentication, have minimum password strength, have unique credentials, disable macros. These are not things that are anything new to people in cybersecurity, but if your organization isn't doing them, it's probably valuable to see this list and to know what it costs and how hard it is and the kind of impact it can have. So I think there is some value there. Um, Jen Easterly, the, the head of CISA, the director of CISA has come out recently, has been talking about these, has been kind of making the rounds and trying to sell sell these goals and the importance of them. And one of the things that I think, and we get in this into this with Sam, is going to be important with these, is whether there is private sector cooperation. Now, Jen Easterly came out and said that she believes that there will be private sector cooperation, that she's been talking to people in the private sector and they're very interested. But whether you're talking about critical infrastructure or something else, a lot of those assets are in the hands of private industry. So if they aren't buying in, if they are not willing to cooperate, if they don't see value in these 37 cybersecurity guidelines, then they're probably not going to work. No, but I mean, at the very least, these um, cybersecurity points that uh, CISA brought 
to the table are at least serving as like a good reminder um, of basic cybersecurity practice. We're not going to take too long here up front. I mean, we did have the all important chicken sandwich discussion, but other than that, we're going to jump right in with Sam because he had a lot of good stuff to say and we like talking to him. So, uh, so it went a little bit longer than we usually go, but we like that. Uh, Sam, as I said before, very interesting guy, has a long military background, uh, has an MBA, has a master of science, has a uh, CISSP. He's got all of these things. He consults with global defense, industrial-based clients on cybersecurity regulatory and technical compliance and plays a lead role in driving forward technical implementation, documentation, and process maturity projects to help the client achieve a compliance-ready state. He is currently the senior compliance consultant with Steelroot. Sam May, always a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. It's good to be a part of it. You've been a good friend to us. I'm going to warn people because we're, uh, you know, we're podcasting here. You can't see us. Tyler and I both have thunderstorms going on. So this, this could be an audio adventure, but I think we're going to do okay. I can't wait to edit it. <laughs> so Sam, let's start at the start here. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to cybersecurity? Yeah, sure. So I was in the military for uh, most of my adult life. Um, doing non-computer stuff completely, completely opposite of computer stuff, to be honest with you. Um, got out of the military and uh, decided I didn't want to you know, be a shooter or anything like that anymore. So I decided to, uh, well, I got fired a lot, to be honest, in the first, first few months um, while I found my legs. I ended up working at Kaiser Permanente. Great job, a great group of people at Kaiser. I was in uh, charge of clinical technology at a hospital campus in Roseville, California, where I pretty much fell in love with the management of technology. Um, left Kaiser after a little bit of time, uh, family moved to Nevada, where I started working at for defense contractors in information technology, which rapidly scaled into information security. Um, bounced around the country for a little while before accepting a role with Steelroot as a um, consultant where I moved quietly um, from the technical security role to governance, a GRC, governance, risk, and compliance, um, focusing mostly on getting defense contractors to be compliant with the myriad cybersecurity rules put on them by the Department of Defense. Um, but that's about it. I, it was mostly luck and uh, good timing and, you know, having to, having to learn things on the fly that got me into cyber, though. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we want to talk to you about because of your background is the defense industrial base and some of the, the things that uh, CISA has been trying to do to shore up critical infrastructure. But before we even get to that, I, I, find, I find you fascinating because of the military background. How did your time in the military inform your career in cybersecurity or did it at all? I know you no, said you were working I think I think my time in the military informed everything I did. You know, I, I had a very weird military career. I was a ship driver who spent most of my career in Iraq and uh, came back to the fleet for a short time before realizing that um, that was not a place I really wanted to be. And so, um, as my uncle famously said, the difference between a ship and a prison is that a ship can sink. And this is not, not that I'm talking people out of joining the Navy, but uh, anyway. Uh, what I learned most fundamentally in the military that, that direct, directly comes over to my uh, civilian life is that the first report is always wrong, right? And, and it's especially true in cyber. And I think that really has informed my, uh, you know, almost everything I do. You know, you, you, see, you see alerts, you see events, you see things that happen. And the biggest part of this job is slowing down and understanding, trying to figure out what is actually going on and how to mitigate the, the 
the vulnerability or the attack or whatever's going on. And um, apart from that, just, you know, keeping my cool. That's the other, I mean, most of this job and most of the military is sitting around waiting to do something that potentially is never going to happen, right? And training and training and training to do a job that honestly, hopefully you never have to do. And uh, that I think is a good corollary for, you know, cyber as well. You, you go through a tremendous amount of training under or the hope, the honest hope, I think maybe the older you get, the honest hope that you never actually have to do the things that you've been trained to do. Nobody wants to do like malware analysis, particularly, you know, you don't want to have it in your environment. You don't want to have ransomware. You don't have any of that kind of stuff. So train, 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 hopefully never use it. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Um, if we can talk a little bit about the, uh, these, uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency Guidelines. So the DHS recently released these kind of highly anticipated cybersecurity performance goals. The idea is to establish a baseline for businesses, critical infrastructure, for cybersecurity. I mean, probably as a direct result of the Biden administration coming on and things like SolarWinds and Colonial. Um, they, you know, they worked with NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, released these sort of 37 guidelines how valuable do you think this kind of government action is for cybersecurity? I don't think it's valuable at all. Yeah, perfectly honest with you. Um, I mean, I, I I respect the effort that went into it. There's a tremendous amount of effort that went into it, and, and please don't get me wrong. Uh, but I, I kind of question who who the target audience is, first of all. Um, and second of all, there's a bit of a you know confusing and confounding element to this where on, on one hand, the federal government is, is telling private industry to to review and use 800-171 as a foundational principle. Then you have documents and you know, programs like this that come out leaning heavily on 853. Um, and then on top of that, you know, it's great to have performance goals. And that, that's, that, is, that is a fantastic you know, ideology to try to have. And, and you know, if we can all kind of come together and it's, it's just a lot of wishful thinking and a ton of energy, a ton of time was put into developing this. A lot of smart people worked on it. But as I read through it, you know, first of all, there's, there's no cross industry anything. I mean, er everything is very specific to not only the industry that you're working in, but the systems you're working on. You, you, there, you can't, there's no broad strokes uh, aside from just saying things like apply multi-factor, you know, authentication or, you know, try to move to a zero trust environment. Like, great, that, uh, yes, please do that. And, and, but to say, okay, you know, we're going to have you know, this generalized program that'll help you reach operational technology security, that might work at one plant, it doesn't work at another, and it, it's just extremely hard. And so when you see stuff like this, and I see programs like this, although I applaud their their efforts, I just I just don't know who is going to pick up this mantle and say, ah, like what CEO, what, what boardroom is sitting around right now and high-fiving each other and saying, oh, you know, the cross-sector goals are out, we can go running out now and, and be secure. I, I just... I don't know. I, I'm not so bullish on on the this changing anything. You know, this kind of leads to next question too. Of like, what do you think the government's role really is within standardizing certain cybersecurity practices? I think that the government should standardize cybersecurity practices within the government first, um, and stop trying to force or not or trying to advise private industry. Um, I, I, in a completely uninformed opinion here. I would be willing to wager that there has been very few times in the history of government when the government has looked at private industry and made sweeping advices to the to private industry that have made private industry substantially better, right? I mean, so government is its own soup sandwich when it comes to cyber. 
it's its own mess of, of confounding rules and regulations from FISMA to everything else. And it doesn't have a wonderful track record of meeting its own performance goals. It doesn't have its own, it doesn't have a great track record of meeting its own FISMA requirements. And so maybe they should look in first and then try to push out. Um, and then private industry, you know, I think that the government has a has an opportunity to require private industry and government contracts to meet certain cybersecurity um, levels, the way it's doing with in the DoD with CMMC and stuff like that. Um, I think it's a it's a spotty and and kind of crappy rollout of the program, but um, but I think that that would be where the government should be focusing, and I think the government really should be leaning on private industry. I mean, look at at. I don't want to pat myself or us on the back too much, but we have developed without any input from the federal government a solution to DoD cyber requirements, and the the Department of Defense and the federal government had no part of that. We took private industry tools and private industry requirements and requirements from our clients, and we built together a product that meets all these goals. The federal government had had no say, no help, nothing, right? And and it didn't have a reason to be. I, I don't. At no point do I think that the federal government should have stepped its, its hand in there. The point is. Private industry will solve these um, these problems, and especially when it comes to cybersecurity, the way it's done, you know, from the beginning. But, and you're gonna and you're gonna need private industry too. I mean, something like critical infrastructure, which you think of as obviously it is critical to the foundations of the country, but you look at something like Oldsmar. A lot of these critical infrastructure industries are held by private industry, and so if yeah. they're not involved and aren't doing their part, then where are we? Yeah, but and at the same time, I mean, you know, people have to understand a few things here, and and it, it's it's difficult when you when you're when you're not when you know when you can't see behind the curtain, it's difficult to really understand how things work, especially when it comes to operational technology and the difference between OT and IT. You know, that alone is kind of difficult for most people to understand that information technology or the computers you use, the printers you use in the office, you know, your the internet, things like that. That that's all IT and the internet connections thereof. OT operational technologies are factories and plants and manufacturing centers and all that kind of stuff. OT has to be on. It has to be running. It has to be available, you know, 24-7. Availability is the number one thing. And especially when it comes to systems that have to do with safety, safety integrated systems, you know, security has to take a second, you know, back seat to availability, honestly, to, to the to the things available, availability to be on. If it's a if it's an overflow valve or, or, or a safety relief valve that is, you know, connected to a bunch of sensors, um, that safety relief valve has to be able to lift no matter what. And there can't be like, you know, a multi-factor authentication requirement for the relief valve to lift or someone's going to die. Well, what that interjects is a certain degree of insecure infrastructure, right? And so where, where you know, people say, oh, well, okay, pipelines and, and, and treatment plants and and all this kind of stuff, they have to be hyper-secure, hyper-secure. They, what they need to be as secure as we can make them and still have that availability that is required for the pipeline to run and for the safety systems to run and stuff like that. Um, so what federal government's role and responsibility in this is, it has to be a hand-in-hand -hand thing. The federal government should be approaching um, the, the private sector and saying, okay, what do you need? Not here. We've we've made this, you know, these cross sector goals for you. I didn't. We didn't ask for them. We didn't need them. And you know, I'd rather them take that money, that budget, and approach one of the communities and says, "What is it that you guys need? How can we help you?" And then provide honest help. Usually, what I hear back and what people hear back is is, you know, what we could use is some kind of cyber nine one one 
where somebody actually comes out to help, especially mom and pop. You know, you have small, and right now we're focused, you know, pretty much solely on the defense industrial base. Most of our clients are, you know, less than 50 people and have really tiny margins to begin with, right? And when you're in a small margin company, you have to choose between cybersecurity and buying a CNC machine that, that replaces the one that's 50 years old or, you know, maybe improving the shop floor or maybe giving everyone a small pay raise. Um, but, you know, or, or you could, you know, spend $500,000 on a cyber thing. And then, and then what happens if, if something does happen? If the alert goes off or you have an issue, who do you call? You know, and, and it would be great if we took all of these resources we're dumping into all these myriad plans and programs and stuff and, and simply made a national center where people could call. And I mean, companies largely, but, you know, eventually maybe even literally your mom and pop could call and say that this has happened. We've been attacked with ransomware. And then somebody comes out to help them, not to do an investigation, not to point fingers, not to find fault or to do a quest for evidence, but just simply to help them, help them remediate their problem. And like, yes, sometimes people take advantage of that. Every now and then Raytheon will call and they don't need the government to come in and help them, but it should be available for everybody. Um, That's an interesting idea. I think I should be able to come up with this on my own, but is there a corollary to that in the government? Is there something that the government does that's similar to that, that, that works? I mean, 911. I mean, yeah. aside, right. aside yeah. from obviously calling the ambulance and the ambulance comes right. out, I mean, that generally speaking works. Um, but on the on the cyber side, or um, you know, kind of. I mean, we have clients that that submit reports to um, the government when when they have cyber incidents. But what they get back is usually a reasonably aggressive set of communications from the government demanding things that sound a lot like they should have an attorney representing them, right? And that's not the communication you need when you've done everything you you can. To secure your infrastructure, and then something happens, as it is, as it is, it is bound to happen. It's going to happen. It's ineluctable. You will get pwned. And then what do you do? You do the right thing. You report it to the Department of Defense, and the Department of Defense immediately sends communications out. Sometimes, sometimes it just ignores you altogether, and sometimes it's like we demand the following. Now, when the government demands something of me, my first reaction is, uh, I need a lawyer. Right? I'm like now. I, I feel like I'm in trouble. And I shouldn't be made to feel like I'm in trouble because I've done everything I've, I'm supposed to do. You know, I've reported this. And, and where's the help? I can get all my drives, all my images, do all the forensics, send it off to the government. And I never hear anything back. What, what is the point? Like, what, what am I getting out of this? And, and, you know, am I secure? Is there some mechanism to help? You know, there are organizations like InfraGuard out there that, you know, if I'm honest, fail at the mark. They, they don't really help anyone except for maybe the members and, you know, maybe... I mean, the only thing I ever got out of InfraGuard was, in theory, my cell phone would work if the grid went down for some reason. I, like, I don't even really know if that's the case, since I never even asked for my phone number. But um, I don't know. I just think that the government and, you know, prime and, and also the state that you're in, you know, like if you look at the state of Massachusetts, the state of Massachusetts has some requirements around cybersecurity, which is fine and great. Um, the, there, there is a, a, you know, kind of command center um, for emergencies that that is activated um, during COVID and you know other crises that that happen, um, which is helpful, but it's not staffed with any kind of cyber professional, so that when there is some kind of attack, um, there isn't a professional government response of, in a way that can really help that I have ever seen. I've never seen the government staff up a response that's been helpful to the victim, 
Makes sense. Yeah, I got to tell you, you're already my favorite guest because <laughs> in one sentence you used ineluctable and pwned. That's just yeah. ex- just yeah, well, you. well done. <laughs> um, I think one of the things that you mentioned there is when people think of either critical infrastructure, the defense industrial base, they're thinking of the Lockheeds and the Raytheons typically, but it really is these little mom and pops when you're talking yeah. about who is supplying things to these companies or making the products. There are thousands and thousands of companies, like you said, 50 people or less, and cybersecurity is probably not where they're spending their money or their first concern. No, and 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 to be honest, it, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. If, if you're some mom and pop manufacturer who makes a widget in the middle of, of you know central wherever, and you employ 35 people in a town where there are, say, 50 jobs, right? So you are the number one employer in the town. You make your you have a five percent margin on your product to begin with because you're you know a sub to a sub to a sub to a prime who's paying you Meyer ducats just so that you can you know they can maximize their profits and I'm not trying to poo poo capitalism but that's just how the system works right so you're all the way down on your end you're making your little tiny margin and now you have this requirement to dump a whole bunch of money into cyber not only a requirement but you you do feel a moral and ethical responsibility to keep the the, the supply chain secure. So every single one of the clients we talk to, which maybe is not totally representative because these are the ones that we talk to and not all of them, right? So there's plenty of, I'm, I'm sure, like bad companies out there, but none of the ones that we talk to, they're trying to do the right thing. They just have no idea where to invest their capital, right? And even when we try to tell them, here's where we need to invest the capital, the investment scaled to their actual revenue is bananas, right? I mean, and, and there's very little ability for there to be any kind of, you know, price adjustment. We we can only play so much with the prices before, you know, either we take the loss or they take the loss. And and the same with subject matter expertise. I mean, we we do, I think, a, a great job at providing value to the client. Um, most of the consultants I know in the space do a lot of, you know, pro bono consulting work where, you know, we bill our time and then we, we usually spend a lot of time on the telephone around meetings, trying to talk people off ledges and, you know, calm down broken hearts over the cost of things. But I hate it when I have to look at a company and I, and I have to sit down with them and go over their, you know, their budgets and look at, well, we were going to buy, literally, we were going to replace this 60 year old system or this hand, you know, hand operated CNC machine with something or, or it breaks, you know, their, their range breaks or or a machine breaks or something happens or you know they need to update a fire control system or something or a fire suppression system. Um, hopefully the private industry isn't upgrading fire control systems, but um, you know, and they have to make these choices. And I also hate it when it's a choice between employee benefits, employee pay and cybersecurity. Now it's a necessary thing, um, but it's just a gut punch and it becomes a little bit less palatable every time you know, I hear a government person um, talking about this in terms of, you know, this is just something we all have to come together, pitch in and do, um, or, or, or somehow victim blame the companies who are getting owned and, and have either no idea what they're doing wrong or no resource to turn to. I don't have a good solution to this, by the way, because there's, a, there's about, I, I mean, I know the 10 or 15 companies out there that are not trying to take advantage of people. Um, and we just simply don't have the the capacity. I mean, there just there isn't the bandwidth for all three hundred thousand people who are in or companies that are in the position. But all right, Sam, you gave me a great segue into the next topic I wanted to talk to you about yeah. is this idea of a cyber skills gap. There was a Fortinet study not too long ago where they talked to global leaders about that. 
60% said that they struggled to recruit cybersecurity talent. 52% said that they struggled to retain qualified people. 67% agree that the shortage of qualified cybersecurity candidates are creating additional risks for their organizations. Uh, is there really a cybersecurity skills gap out there? So yes and no, okay? And uh, once again, this is Sam May's opinion. Um, my opinion is informed by what I've seen and experienced in my life. Um, however, here's what I have seen. I have seen company after company after company not understand the cybersecurity requirements in space, um, either have crazily high um, um, requirements as far as you know skills and years and service and stuff like that, um, that don't match pay, right? So if you're requiring a whole bunch of certifications, a whole bunch of years of experience, and a whole bunch of degrees um, and a whole bunch of you know skills, you know programming skills and technical skills and stuff like that. And you're not paying you know something like two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year for this person. You're bananas, right? Like you you have to choose which which of these you want. Most cyber positions don't require a ton of experience and don't require a ton of training. And the proof of this is in our you know, maybe the government's most premier offensive cyber unit is run by none other than the United States Marine Corps. And I can tell you right now that the, the kids who are going into, you know, MARCOR cyber uh, are not coming from huge, you know, banks of certifications out there. They're coming through Marine Corps boot camp and going to their MARCOR cyber and getting trained. They're going along the way to their A schools, the C schools or whatever, and getting training as they go, right, to their advanced individual training or whatnot. So the Marine Corps says we can take a Marine in, we can train them to be a rifleman, and then we can train them to be a cybersecurity person, then we can put them over here and put them to work. Um, why can't industry do that? Okay, if the Marine can take the Marines can take a rifleman and turn them into a cybersecurity professional, why can't private industry take someone who's excited off the floor and turn them into a cybersecurity person that they need, right? And so the the that's a there there's a an industry wide almost fear of taking people and building the, the employee you need. They'll do it in almost any other portion of the company, right? Anywhere else, they'll take an, a, a, inter, you know, a, a, a person with very little training and turn them into a CNC operator or turn them into a marketing specialist or whatever else. There's, there's an introductory role for just about anyone, but then it comes to cyber and all of a sudden, you need this amazing unicorn who can do a thousand million different things. And the reason is that is the from I would say mid-management, well, really frontline management on up, there is a wonderfully poor or a wonderful lack of sophistication when it comes to what cybersecurity is and the type of people that need to do it. And the reality is, and 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 the the difference between cybersecurity and IT, right? I mean, IT is all about keeping the blinking boxes blinking and keeping the printers printing and keeping the end, you know, the end users using their computers. And cybersecurity is about two things, monitoring systems for anomalous behavior and enforcing policy. It's not, you know, a cybersecurity analyst, it's not their job isn't to write policy. That's a manager's job. It's to enforce policy. And people don't like to have rules enforced on them. So from a very beginning, it's an adversarial, you know, position at most companies. And then companies don't really know what they want. You know, they, they say they have a skills gap, but tell me what the skills are that you want. What is exactly is it that the company, the company, the industry wants these people to do, right? Do they want them to just sit in a room all day and stare at logs for hours and hours on end? 
just, just they look at syslog and event logs just for hours and hours and hours and then wonder why people leave that community, why people don't want to do it. There's no standardized promotion. There's there's no community to grow into. What's the glide slope or promotion from entry-level SOC analyst to CISO? You know, what does it look like? And nobody can answer that question. The industry is new, cybersecurity is new, but there isn't a, there, I mean, you can look at almost any other position and look at and go from, in, in almost any industry. And there is a general glide slope from entry level to the C-suite. You know, you can look at anything from marketing, sales to operations to whatever else. And you can say, okay, well, you start on the floor you get, and you start, you know, you move your way up to position to position to position. And if you work hard and stay out of trouble and take increasing roles and responsibility and whatnot, eventually you'll you have a shot at, you know, mid-level mid management and then senior management and executive management. But, you know, you talk to a kid who's on the sock how, do, how does a kid in the SOC become CISO? And then you look at the CISOs out there and you ask them, what was your career change? And they look back and there's like an MBA involved. Like, um, I mean, I have an MBA. It's never helped me in cybersecurity once. And so like, it, it's just a, it's a muddled in, environment. And, you know, one of, one of the most telling things is that if you go on to, um, you know, where obviously I get all my news from Reddit and you go on to uh, the cybersecurity subreddit, and you look at, you know, experience after experience after experience of kids coming out of college, coming out of bachelor's, master's programs, um, and unable to find a job, sitting in interviews where people berate them and bully them and make them feel stupid and worthless because they don't know something. I mean, yeah, you know what? The kid coming out of college doesn't know as much as you. Like, congratulations. I, I too, can beat a five-year-old in a foot race. It, it's not a, it, you're not, you haven't proven anything. You haven't, you haven't made anything better. You know, the kid who's in front of you should be being motivated and to 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 excel at, at your company. Um, and so that's where it really where it is. You know, you have you have human resources and hiring managers out there saying things like, you know, for this introductory role, you need to have a CISSP, uh, utterly worthless certification to 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 do this job. Um, for what? You know, the CISSP certification is billed as being an inch deep and a mile wide. I have one. It doesn't, I mean, wh what does that mean? It, it certifies you to do nothing. Um, and really certifications in general, we have, a, we have a job market where it's extremely cert dependent. You need to have 15 different certifications to even be looked at. So many people need to get so many different certifications, a cert pipeline and certifications are watered down at this point where it's just a, you know, basically a pay to play situation or if you get enough, you know, certs, maybe you get a, a job interview, but then you've spent your entire life getting all these certs um, you don't have a whole lot of experience. You can't get experience because you don't have certs. Once you have certs, you can't get the job because you don't have any experience. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, so I do think that there is a skills gap. I think that the skills gap is created by the industry who says that they're, they're short of it, that all these companies out there that are saying, you know, we, we, we have all these critical failures are the same ones who are creating the problem to begin with. There's loads of people, hundreds, thousands, millions standing in line for the jobs and no one will hire them. So no, there's not a labor gap at all. There's tons of them. There's a skills gap because industry refuses to put them into practice and take the risk that maybe one of them will screw up. IT people screw up all the time. As a matter of fact, it's not, it, it, just like in cybersecurity, it's not if, but when, I remember when I was hiring people for IT roles and I would tell them during the hiring process, you will screw up. Like you will push a button and bring the production environment down. You're gonna do something so atrociously horrible that you're going to be on it. You're, you're going to stare at it and wonder 
who is going to kill you first? Like, like, is there, how long is that line going to be? You're going to be terrified to pick up the phone. It is with a horror staring at the stack and wondering, there's no way, right? And then shakily, you're going to pick up the phone and call somebody. And you're going to find out that that person's probably going to laugh and be like, oh yeah, I did that once. Uh, and then we're going to fix it, right? The same in cyber. And then there has to be a, a degree of resilience and a degree of understanding. I mean, most that I've come across, most executive management in, in 2022, you know, America uh, doesn't know a thing about cybersecurity, uh, which is completely unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. You know, like uh, it's it's 2022, and and to, to sit back on your haunches and say, you know, well, I don't know what all these words mean, uh, it's it's an embarrassment. You know, and then and then you expect everyone underneath you to have this degree of competency. You yourself had no interest in acquiring yourself. I mean, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that we've created. Yeah. And is there a way for businesses to start kind of writing, writing that ship a little bit? I don't know, with like some sort of incentives or just kind of coming to their senses to some degree and being like willing to train up um, other IT professionals or whatever you have them be? Yeah, I think there is. I, th I think just that, just understanding that it's not a labor gap, it's a skills gap. There's plenty of people, so you have to take a risk. You have to take a risk and you have to hire that kid out of college. He has no experience, exactly. Just like all the other kids you've hired out of college, you have no experience. They have the knowledge, let them gain experience. And then, and then be willing to have, a, you, know, you know, don't have a, a, a zero defect mentality where everything has to be perfect all the time. Don't, have, don't be so risk adverse that you're only willing to hire the five subject matter experts on the planet to do this job, that there will be failures, there will be problems, um, but there also will be great successes, right? And not every business has the ability to train people. That's good, that's fine, but, but don't be so selective in your hiring of people that you hire nobody, right? I'd rather have a 22 year old with a bachelor's degree and no experience sitting downstairs in my, in my little cybersecurity office, which is probably a broom closet, and, and doing something, right? Trying to figure stuff out than having nobody because HR is waiting for the unicorn to come jumping through the door and you know have all the degrees and certs and be perfectly happy to work for $60,000 a year. And even though I spent more than that last year on my membership you know, dues for my certifications, but you know, it's not gonna happen. So take a risk, you know, hire the kids out of college. There's plenty of good programs out there. There's plenty of garbage programs out there as well, which is another thing, you know, that, you know, there, there's no way to really understand because most of the programs are so new, but there's a lot of really crappy cyber bachelor's programs out there, but it's not the kid's fault who took the, they don't, they don't know, right? So hire them, you know, hire them, start, start making, and, and maybe there should be an incentive. Maybe businesses should get a tax deduction or a tax write-off for hiring cyber people out of, out of college, you know, make it, you know, if the government wants to do something, make it financially palatable for companies to make, take risks on new cyber talent, you know? Um, and then if you combine that with a national 911 center so that, you know, you have this kid who has been classically trained how to look at a log and understand, you know, how they know how to use Wireshark, they know how to do basic stuff, put them downstairs in your little cyber office and then teach them to look for weird stuff. And when weird stuff happens, he dials 911 and a professional comes in and helps out, right? There's, there's no, no, no one's in trouble. The, the paramedics, the cyber paramedics have just showed up. The paramedics don't yell at you when you, when you dial 911. They don't come to your house and make you feel bad that you cut your finger with your kitchen knife. They just take you to the hospital, right? They might talk about you after the fact, but that's not, you know, here nor there. And, and just, you know, if we had a combination of those two things, then I think our cyber, 
you know, labor gap, skills gap would have would evaporate rapidly. But yeah, people just have to take risks and stop bitching about it and stop talk, looking at the government and saying, why isn't the federal government helping out? Why, what, why, what is the, what? Like, why would the federal government help out? Why should they? Why should my tax dollars go support a business that has no interest in helping themselves? Right? I mean, that's, but anyway. You kind of alluded to this earlier too about just businesses and cybersecurity in general. Um, why do you think like some businesses just don't take their cybersecurity seriously? Is it because, I don't know, the boogeyman hasn't come knocking for them yet? Or why, why do you think that they just kind of haven't come to their senses? I don't think they understand it. I don't think they understand it. I think most IT people don't understand it. Um, they have, they have a, this, this notion that things should be secure but they don't know what that really means. They also don't, nobody is helping them understand the threat. You know, so most people see cybersecurity as having a $20,000 firewall uh, in your stack, uh, which has just made you secure against not much. I mean, if I'm perfectly honest, if, if, there's, a, if there's an attacker hell bent on getting into your physical infrastructure, they're, they're, they're probably not gonna even concern themselves with your firewall, right? I mean, why would they? There's, there's a million ways around it there's even a million ways around, you know, you know, stateful inspection and the whole nine yards. Uh, you know, so nobody really knows what it is. Boards don't know what it is. It's this amorphous idea. Physical security is super easy. You hire a security guard, they stand at the door and they check IDs when they come in, right? It's easy to understand that. It's also easy to justify it. I feel safe when there's a, you know, big dude standing there who's keeping the bad guys out. That's easy. Cyber, it's hard. It's also hard to see any kind of ROI because it's just, it's just a cost center. You just spend money on this stuff and, and, and at best, at the best, nothing happens, right? So you could spend $10,000 a month on a system and never know if it's working or not, other than nothing has happened. You know, the this, this security guard, you look, you see, he's there, he looks mean, he's, you feel safe, but who knows if your investment is working or not? Who knows if you've had any attacks or if you defended anything or it's actually done anything for you? The best case scenario is nothing ever happens. Worst case scenario, you spend a bunch of money and a bunch of bad stuff happens, right? I mean, so... I don't think it's a question that they're not taking it seriously. I think it's a question of they have no idea what to do. And like every other portion of humanity, when you don't know what to do, chances are you're not going to do anything. You're just going to move on and focus on the things, you know, the alligators closest to the boat. Um, and there's scarce resources out there to try to help companies understand how to prioritize their investments, you know, how to invest their capital in such a way that they're actually getting the most out of it, that they're not foolishly you know, giving up on opportunity costs, you know, for these investments that don't actually provide any more security. You know, like, I, do you need a $40,000 access point that's got all these security bells and whistles just so that your, you know, your employees can print and surf Reddit all day and TikTok? Do, do you need that? Or are those investments better spent somewhere else? And as, you know, IT's pretty much shrugging their shoulders being like, I don't know, it seemed like the vendor said this is what we need. And, and then the rest of the company, you know, the board and the CFO and, Everyone's confused. And you do have some companies out there that just, you know, they don't care. They're like, it's not going to happen to us. But I don't think anyone really thinks that way anymore. I think the boards are terrified of, of getting attacked and having a, a reputational loss and, and the loss to revenue and income and all that kind of stuff. But they just don't know what to do. So they do nothing. I'm going to throw one more question at you, Sam, as we're closing down here. So I love talking to you because you're happy to give your opinion. So I'm going to give you a soapbox here. Okay. Now, it doesn't have to be about the skills gap. doesn't have to Your be risk. about the, the, the CISA goals. Um, if you could give, what is one 
piece of advice, one piece of information you desperately wish more people knew about industrial cybersecurity? One piece of advice, you have to find a partner. Um, look, industrial, okay, industrial cybersecurity is, is almost impossible cliff to climb, okay? Because like I said, industry has to be, the data in, in industrial systems has to be available all the time. Availability is number one, right? Otherwise the system doesn't, doesn't work, automation doesn't work. We have to have automation. And as we move forward, there's gonna be more global interconnection of automation and stuff like that. So this idea that, you know, just don't connect it to the internet. That's a great, beautiful thing to say, but in reality and practice, only more and more stuff are gonna be connected to the WAN because we, we need to be able to do more with less. We need to increase productivity with fewer workers in the workforce. That's just how the, how the world will go, right? And so since availability is so key and second and, and security is second, you need to find a partner that you can trust that can help you because I'd rather companies focus on their core competencies of producing the widget that they make and do excellently and try to, you know, and not try to also become a cybersecurity company, right? And become experts. I mean, hire your assets, build your talent. I'm not going back on what I said a few minutes ago, but the number one thing you can do is find a trusted partner. And this has to be, this is the most difficult portion of it, right? I mean, you can't go with a vendor who promises that they have a solution to all your woes with, you know, you, you just buy our product and, and, and everything will be solved for you. A good partner is one that will be honest with you. It's an uphill battle. It's going to be a, a slog, but we're going to work with you. We're going to work with your revenue. We're going to, we're going to try to not impede on your free cash flow to the point where you're no longer a business anymore, right? We're going to work with you to identify your, your vulnerabilities and the threats to your vulnerabilities. And then we're going to work primarily to shore up those vulnerabilities, to reduce your exposure to the threats that we can identify. And in the process, we're going to work on your compliance ready state so that you can actually evidence this to, you know, a governmental body or some sort of regulatory body that demands that you be compliant. Um, but compliance is not security and security is not compliance. They're two different things. And if you have a vendor or a partner out there, who is selling you a one-size-fits-all solution, they're lying to you. And so you need to work with somebody who is honest with you, who will tell you the things you don't want to hear, um, and will help you prioritize your capital investments. You know, if they don't, if they don't seem to care about your capital budget, it's not the right partner, right? If, if they don't have the empathy to look at you and say, yeah, we understand um, that, you know, you need to have these 10 systems, but this year you can only afford this little piece of the one, then we'll figure out a way, even if it's not selling you our Cadillac and it's selling you or helping you get freeware, you know, something cheaper. Um, one of the things that I love to do is, you know, we have this beautiful catalog of products and they're extremely expensive. And as much as it pisses off my employers from time to time, I'm like, you know, there's a low or no cost solution to this. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles. It's hard to, it's hard to use, hard to install, hard to manage, but it is cheap and you can put it in place. And with the right amount of tweaking, it does the right thing. Um, and that's the type of partner and not to, you know, sell myself here, but that's the type of partner that you need to find. Um, so that that's, and that's the number one solution. I, I kind of, I keep coming back to over and over again. I love it, Sam. Excellent. Amazing. Good information all the way around. We always love having you on. Thanks so much for being with us. Anytime. Pleasure. All right. That was fun. Always love having Sam May on. Tyler, it's the first time you've met Sam May. Impressions. 
Oh, what a fun guy he is. I think I would, I'd definitely go out to dinner with him sometime. Just talk about the world. I'm sure he's got many more takes than that. It was funny when I asked him uh, if he thought these guidelines were going to be successful, I would have been floored if his answer was anything other than no, he doesn't see a lot of value in them. Now, mind you, he's always got a nuanced take. He'll hit you with the hard take and then or the hot take and then immediately will go, okay, here's where value exists, but here's why. I mean, he's really thought this stuff out, which makes him fun to talk to. And I, I made the joke during the podcast, but anybody who uses the word ineluctable in regular conversation, that's my kind of person. So if, if you can use that word in your regular conversation, come on to the podcast and impress me. Yeah, I'm a fan of that kind of energy. So that's, uh, we're going to keep having more discussions like this about the things that are going on in the world about uh, critical infrastructure, which is a big part of industrial cybersecurity, what we talk about here at ICS Pulse. You'll find tons of great articles on, on what's going on in the world and people talking about securing OT systems, about uh, the CISA guidelines, all that kind of stuff. You'll find at our site, industrialcybersecuritypulse.com. It's a mouthful, but industrialcybersecuritypulse.com. Yeah, and if if you want to come on and refute Sam's opinions, of course, that is always an option. A great way to reach out to us would be reaching out to us uh, via Twitter at ICS underscore Pulse. Or if you're looking to send an email, of course, you can email me, Tyler Wall, at twall at cfemedia.com. Uh, and then for other great content, of course, like Gary said, you can go to industrialcybersecuritypulse.com. As well as when you're there, you'll find um, where we drop our podcast episodes regularly every Tuesday morning. Now, for the record, Sam did say if somebody wants to refute him, if there's somebody who disagrees with his takes, he'd be happy to come back on and have a conversation with that person. I think that's one of the things we love about Sam is he's got his takes and he's going to come hard with those takes, but he's also willing to have the conversation and be challenged on those things. I think that's the way that we move conversations forward. To your point earlier, Tyler, it's being, it doesn't hurt to have your own opinion, but being willing to listen, be challenged on it, and maybe be swayed if somebody's got a better argument. Yeah, we'll throw you both into a boxing ring, uh, give you, I don't know, maybe, maybe six rounds. <laughs> I, I will warn you, though, that Sam did do, I think, like 20 years in the Navy. So you, I mean, I don't know what kind of shape you're in out there, listener. But yeah, if you want to go in the ring with with Sam, I'd uh, have a little, I would, I would advise a little bit of caution. Oh, yeah. But yeah, like I said, every, every Tuesday, we're dropping new podcast episodes. So uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks for being with us. 